Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times with episode 479 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right. Getting over is back once again, and it is Thursday, so you know exactly what that means. We are here to break down everything that happened over the last week in the worlds of AEW and NXT. We have seven hours of professional wrestling to discuss in this one episode. So the Silver King, I don't know if you can tell by my voice, I happen to be exhausted from this last week. I watched five hours of wrestling on Thursday alone before taping this show. Point being, I'm not going to waste any more time. We're getting right to it today. Off the top, the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast, as you know, is all about Defy. So please remember to visit Apple Podcasts and Spotify, wherever you're listening to the show, really. Leave a five-star rating on Apple. If you take a little extra time and leave a five-star written review, we will read it live right here on the show. Also, please do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news analysis, highlights, all of that good stuff. Our Twitter account is slowly but surely growing, and we want to keep up that momentum. So not only do I want you to follow us, but if you do follow us already, don't forget, retweet, like, share our posts, and get our stuff out there. That helps us immensely, not just the individual show posts, but when we talk about news or highlights on any of that good stuff, quote, tweet, comment, whatever the case might be, please don't forget to share our tweets at getting overcast. Also, don't forget, I happen to love the number five. And I truly hope you do as well, because for just five bucks a month, you can become an official getting overhead. Visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Sign up. You will get news posts and bonus audio every single week. And that five bucks per month or 50 bucks for the year will support the continuation of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. And folks, you've been supporting us for such a long time. We appreciate it so much. We're almost at episode 500. That is absolutely wild to me that we're almost at 500 episodes of this show. That's more episodes than I did on any of the other podcasts I was on previously. And we're about to hit that number right here. It just shows that we're successful and it shows that you all have supported us to this point. So again, consider buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Now, once again, because we only have a limited amount of stuff to talk about regarding NXT and five hours, along with a updated AEW all in London card to discuss for AEW, we're going to kick things off with NXT. We're going to hit AEW on the back end of the show because it is really the main event of this podcast. Don't forget, if you only watch or only want to listen to information about one show or the other, you can visit our episode description wherever you are listening to this podcast right now. There are timestamps for each segment, so you can jump around, but I certainly hope you do not, and always, I hope that everyone listens to the entire show. So kicking off with NXT, the crowd is usually hot in the Performance Center. I know, you know, some people don't like it. I'm not a huge fan of what it is. It's different completely than the black and gold era, but still not something that's necessarily great per se. But they were dead for most of the show. It was a very odd crowd. It was also what I thought to be one of the most uneventful episodes of NXT in a long time. A ton of segments felt like they didn't really matter or were just wheels spinning in place. Most notably, neither Carmelo Hayes nor Tiffany Stratton were heavily featured in the episode. Each appeared for like 30 seconds, despite both of them being there live in attendance. 
This ended up being the highest rated edition of NXT, I think since April 2021, if I am remembering, I didn't write it down. That's huge. You want your champions on that show. You want your biggest names on the show. I didn't really feel like NXT delivered that for all the people who were tuning in for Dominic Mysterio, Rhea Ripley, and Rey Mysterio. So wasn't thrilled there. I also just found the booking of the episode odd compared to what are almost always hot shows filled with excited crowds and plenty of content between the matches and the backstage segments. Just something for me was off. Maybe it was just me personally. I don't think so, though. I would say only about one third of this edition of NXT hit for me, where it's usually three quarters. So that for me is a big difference. Anyway, let's get to everything that happened on Tuesday night. North American Championship, Dominic uh, with Rhea Ripley in his corner against Dragon Lee with Rey Mysterio in his corner. Both pairs opened NXT with promo videos. Most notable was Rey calling Dragon the future of Lucha Libre and wanting him to teach Dom a lesson. Rhea gassed Dom up backstage when Lyra Valkyria came in, proud of herself for beating JC Jane, but pointing out that Ripley manipulated her just like she was manipulating Dom. She said if Rhea really believed in Dom, she'd let him fight his own battles. It was refreshing to see someone verbally get one over on Ripley for a change. It doesn't really happen. Ray grabbed the mic and introduced Dragon before the match. That was a nice touch. It wasn't as extensive a lead up to a huge appearance and a huge match as I expected, but everything did work well overall. It was obviously the main event of the evening. Rhea got between Dom and Ray at ringside. Dom hit three amigos, then started untying Dragon's mask. Lee came back with a dragon screw, tope suicida, and hanging double stomp out of the corner. Dragon hit a rebound German suplex, but he ate a 619 before getting double knees up on the frog splash. He came back with a Liger bomb for a false finish. Ripley did the two title distraction with the referee and Ray distracted as well. Uh, she bopped Dragon in the back of the head with her title before Dom hit a falcon arrow to retain his title. Ray got in Dom's face after the bell. Rhea again got between them, poking Mysterio in the chest. So Valkyria appeared and attacked, and she and Dragon cleared the ring from the heels. So look, the finish was paint by numbers here, right? Like, it's literally how Dom won the title initially. You would think everyone involved would be smarter about that. Maybe it was booked that way for a rematch at No Mercy inside of a steel cage, or maybe something that would keep Ripley from interfering. But I just felt like I was left wanting more once this was over, probably because it was formulaic more so than anything else. Hopefully the rematch is the plan because it would make a lot more sense if that's the goal and Dragon Lee ultimately beats him for the title than if this was the only match that they're doing in this storyline. Clearly, they're going to do a tag team match. One would expect Dom and Rhea against Dragon and Valkyria. But in terms of Dominic and Dragon Lee, ideally, that would be the title change scenario, at least one would think. And putting that at no mercy, which is what we expected to be the case before this match was booked, that would certainly make a lot of sense. So we'll see how it transpires. That was my thought, though, coming out of it. Rey Mysterio earlier on NXT put over Roxanne Perez backstage. Then he approached Thea Hale, who completely marked out for him. He told her that he knows what it's like to be the ultimate underdog, but saw the heart that she shows in the ring and told her to believe in herself. Thea asked Rey if he still loves Dom despite everything that they've done and the fact that they're fighting family being you know against one another. Mysterio said he doesn't like what he's become, but he still loves him and hopes that he finds his real family. So then Chase U came up to her after, and the parallel here is supposed to be that she's angry at Chase U. So she was asking Ray, could I actually love them again? And 
She said, unlike them, Ray would have never thrown in the towel. This was a really cute segment, but it was also effective, especially with Thea. Good character development for her. Solid usage of Ray beyond the main event itself. This is one of the things I liked most from NXT on Tuesday night. Mustafa Ali fought Axiom. Speaking of another thing I liked, uh, there was a cool Hurricanrana spot off the apron with Ali getting flung into the announce table. Scripps, Bronco Nima, and Lucian Price came out to taunt Axiom. There was a really sick move with Axiom countering a springboard by sliding through the ropes with a sunset flip style powerbomb. So the Shinsuke Nakamura move, but rather than on the canvas between the ropes, that's just sick. Then the heels just left. Ali hit a jackhammer on Axiom. Axiom came back with a Canadian destroyer and an Escalera moonsault outside. Then he sold a knee. He also hit a tornado DDT and a slightly messy springboard rolling DDT. Ali grabbed a hold of Axiom's mask and ripped it half off. And then he paused, realizing what he had done. And Axiom was fixing it. So he just shoved him off the ropes. Then he hit a 450 inside for the one, two, three. After the bell, Ali demanded to be the number one contender for the North American Championship, saying he would start a campaign to be that if necessary. Now, the wrestling here was top notch. And if this was in front of the Minneapolis crowd from Raw, they may might have lost their minds at some of the stuff in this match. The NXT crowd, as I mentioned earlier, it was actually disappointing here, given the high level of work. But beyond the wrestling, the storytelling was on point. Just continuing to tell this character story of Ali being torn between being a good guy, like he wants to be, and doing what's necessary to advance his career by taking advantage of situations as they show themselves. It's a depth of character that we don't usually get, like an internal conflict, especially in NXT, but in all of WWE. So I love what Ali is doing right now with this gimmick. Now, Ali is either the other option to win the North American title, other than Dragon Lee, or he might be a cog in the wheel of that storyline transpiring. Ali beating Dom would make a lot of sense in the vein of him being a main roster talent. So if Dom did lose to him clean, it would obviously be acceptable. There's just far less of a built-in story here than there is with Dragon. I suppose one way they could build it up is Dom having the silver spoon in his mouth. He went right to the main roster upon debuting. Ali had to fight and claw for his spot just in NXT or really in the cruiserweight division. And he was overlooked his entire career. And now he's fighting through NXT just to get this opportunity. That could play. Let's see how this develops. Ilya Dragunov was looking all dapper backstage, saying he would meet Trick Williams in the ring and all he could promise him was pain. It's at this point I should note that apparently I've been saying Ilya's name wrong for, I guess, a couple of years now. Not so much wrong, but not exactly correct. Isla is not wrong because some people do pronounce it that way, but Ilya is clearly the way he pronounces it and the way WWE is pronouncing it. So I will effort to fix that here on the podcast. Anyway, they had a confrontation. Williams respecting Dragunov. They disagreed about what happened at Great American Bash. Trick said he wanted a match to prove himself against one of the best. Ilya said he's ready to destroy anything that gets in his way and he'll kill Trick at Heat Wave in two weeks. This was the first time they announced Heat Wave. I always find it funny when NXT does this. They decide to hold the TV special and they don't actually announce it until a wrestler just makes a challenge and mentions the special. It's very weird. Uh, Trick is not the best promo necessarily, but his lines are so slick that when he has the mic, you want to hear every word that he says. Ilya's actually improved massively on the stick and he was completely believable in this segment. In a matchup of these two, Dragunov would be a massive favorite, obviously. And yet the segment was successful in selling fans 
that each hates the other so much that anything can happen when they meet in two weeks. I love this. So obviously, some of these segments here early were my favorite parts of the show. Dijak and Wesley both got in Carmelo Hayes' grill backstage trying to get an NXT title match. Dijak called out Wes for not being in any championship picture right now, so Wes shot back that Dijak wasn't one to talk. Dijak then attacked him and destroyed him into the wood lockers. We saw Wesley later. We'll talk about that in a moment. But (laughs) he was fine and didn't seem that phased by getting the shit kicked out of him by Dijak. Eddie Thorpe later got a video package about being a Native American, looking at the constellations and refocusing on himself moving forward without fear. That was all okay. Don't really have much else to say here. Drew Gulak and Charlie Dempsey were informed that Hank and Tank were not clear to compete. We'll tell you why in a minute. Gulak called them soft and Dempsey shit on them for not fighting while injured. Damon Kemp came up again telling them that he's tough. He basically wants to work with them, but they didn't want a handicap match. So when Briggs and Jensen made their return, interrupting the segment, they took that match instead. Kemp was bothered by that. Miles Bourne also joined the heels ringside for the match. He's kind of like working with them as an intern. So we got Briggs and Jensen against Gulak and Dempsey. Bourne didn't have water when Gulak asked, so he kicked him away from ringside to backstage. Briggs countered an armbar with a one-arm powerbomb. With all four brawling, Kemp ran down and suplexed Jensen with Dempsey hitting a German suplex bridge for the win. Gulak and Dempsey, they were proud of Kemp after the bell. None of this had a shred of heat. The crowd was dead for it, given the style of wrestling primarily. Rough segment from start to finish, and what happened backstage wasn't much better. Later, Trick walked out of the building when West drove by, trying to give him a message for Mello. Trick said, dude, deliver it yourself. Again, Wes got the shit kicked out of him. He was driving his car, looked fine. Then Kemp, Gulak, and Dempsey confronted him in the parking lot, saying no fight camp could prepare him for Dragunov. He told them to show up next week because he had something special for them. So obviously, Williams is going to fight one of them next week on NXT. Then Bourne showed up late to the confrontation, and Gulak criticized him again. There was a significant portion of this week's NXT that just, again, felt like it was uneventful. This segment was an example of it. Sure, it connected a couple storylines. It had a level of intrigue, but nothing actually really happened. Tiffany Stratton backstage did her normal rambling nonsense promo comparing herself to Barbie. She said she never got to thinking about her next opponent. And literally, that was the entire segment. No answers, no challengers, nothing. Hey, next week, I'm going to do this. Nothing. Left a lot to be desired, given this was her first appearance since Great American Bash. It wasn't even a real promo. She was just kind of babbling around. So I don't get what the point of this was. Uh, Von Wagner fought Braun Breaker backstage before the match. Wagner said even badasses get put in their place. He was also wearing an awful shirt that said, you're going to get tabled. I mean, they're literally at this last ditch effort to get this guy over by basically having him do a fan service gimmick with table spots. Not a good look. Breaker later completely dismissed Wagner's trash talk, which I thought was actually pretty funny. Braun hit a standing moonsault, taunted Vaughn all match, and ran the ropes for a spear and got the win. Braun then lifted Mr. Stone after the bell, only to eat a knee from Vaughn, who then powerbombed him through the announce table with all of Vic Joseph's candy flying everywhere. Stone was crazy excited after that. He hugged him, and then he ripped the buttons off his long sleeve shirt. I guess we're going to get a rematch here, like a tables match maybe. No, thank you. It was basically easy work for Breaker, and Wagner was wholly unimpressive once again. There's just no improvement from this guy week to week. And while Stone was funny here, I'm struggling to buy into wanting to see this guy, meaning Von Wagner, on my television. Breaker, for an in-between feud, it's fine. And some of his promos the last couple of weeks have been great. He just needs something better to sink his teeth into that matters. And Wagner as a challenger for this guy, Wagner a loser on NXT, 
challenging Breaker, who's you know one of the longest reigning champions in brand history and obviously had a dominant run here and is now a heel, a badass heel. I don't know. It's just not believable for me. Uh, Noam Dar fought Tyler Bate in a match that was kind of for his fake Heritage Cup. Vic made it more clear on commentary that nothing was actually on the line. Bate hit a Tyler Driver 97 to earn the first fall in round two. Dar tagged him with Judas Effect, then locked in a knee bar for a submission in round four to tie at 1-1. He kept it on well after the bell. Dar then countered a rebound lariat with a knee bar in midair, which was actually a really cool move. Bate hit the rebound lariat coming back and reversed the pinning combination to win the fake cup directly off Dar with a fall in round five. Fun match. Bate winning always felt like the most likely outcome. It was just strange how in one breath, everyone was so adamant the cup was bullshit, yet Bate picked it up as a trophy after the bell and then remained with it later backstage when Metaphor approached him. Maybe the idea being he was taunting them by holding it. But if the cup didn't matter, then he should have just smashed it, honestly. So they demanded the cup back, saying it was emotional support for Dar, kind of like a blankie. Then Nathan Frazier walked up with the real cup, saying he might convince Bate to return it to them if they admit it's fake. They refused. Then Frazier offered not only for the cup to be returned, but that he would defend the real cup against Dar at Heatwave if he just admitted the other one was fake. Dar refused to say it was fake, but he did say Frazier was holding the original cup that he was never beaten for. So Frazier was like, that's good enough. Bate handed it back to Dar, and then Frazier promised to settle it for good in two weeks. So let's just get this straight, okay? Dar lost a match and his fake cup, but was given it back because he said it wasn't the original. And now they're still doing a real cup versus fake cup match anyway. This all because Dar originally lost the cup when Oro Mensa defended it for him. What are we doing here? Like, this was convoluted as hell. Why even do the bait match in the first place? This segment could have worked for a shot at the real cup, and they could have just kind of skipped this whole middle portion of it, which just for me didn't really make a lot of sense. I don't understand what they're doing. Metaphor is funny. They're a group that is definitely getting over, but doing it in this really convoluted way, I don't know. I don't know that this is going to work the way they think it's going to work. I don't know. It's I, I was looking for a sound drop that I could play that would express my my take on the entire thing. I'm not bored, so I'm not going to play on board, brother. I don't think it's a pile of shit necessarily. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, just not great. Not my taste is probably the best way I can put it. Angel Garza and Umberto Creo made amends over their argument via text message with Creo pointing out they were not only failing to live up to their grandfather's expectations, but actually they were embarrassing him. Garza said they should honor him instead, and they both got emotional looking at pictures of him on their desk. Totally nonverbal, this video was. And it definitely caught my attention because of that. And the idea of them getting back to basics and honoring their family, it's clearly the right direction for them to go as a team. This had really strong telenovela vibes for me, which I have to believe was purposeful. And I saw a huge contingent of fans who were reacting to this online after it was over. They thought it was overly dramatic and stupid and terrible. That's how I know that they're uncultured and have never seen a telenovela because this was exactly something that would come out of something like that. And to me, because of that, it hit. It was corny, yes. I think it was supposed to be corny. And because of that, I found it to be great. My hopes continue to be raised by their NXT return. And 
now that they've established that they're staying together and they're going to be trying to honor the heritage of their grandfather, that gives me even higher hopes that this repackaging is going to lead to something that hopefully can get them up to the main roster in the future sooner than later. Schism was shown laying out a ton of jobbers backstage with Joe Gacy saying they would find the Creed brothers or cause more carnage. Hank and Tank were backstage. Ledger was trying to get Walker to buy into the tag team name of Smash Mouth. Might be some trademark issues there, guys. Uh, Then Schism approached and laid them out. They later approached and threatened the D'Angelo family while they were in a photo shoot. Tony D pulled out a crowbar. Dyad said they were more interested in the tag team titles than finding the Creeds. Gacy got them to stay on task instead. So then we had Ivy Nile against Kiana James. Kiana chucked her bag at Ivy at the bell and was really aggressive early. Schism, with a ton of their followers, completely surrounded the ring and started to bang on the canvas in unison. Nile went on a run that kind of looked like she was going to be on the way to winning the match. She got James in a choke, and then she looked and saw Ava in the corner of her eye and just released the choke. Ava didn't do anything. She wasn't threatening to get in the ring. Ivy just let go. So James hit some really strange falling boot and got the win. Schism ganged up on Nile with D'Angelo family making the save. The idea of Schism tearing through the locker room and the visual of them surrounding the ring, that worked. The confrontation with D'Angelo family, to some degree, made sense. Maybe I was just tired when I was watching NXT, but I found all of this quite boring to be taking up so many segments on the show. And a title match happening next week seemed to be way too quick. If there is one storyline that you are going to tell throughout an entire episode of NXT, it should not be the schism. I mean, they are barely barely broke through the dead in the water categorization that I gave them and became somewhat interesting. But one of the reasons why they became interesting is we were getting them in low doses. When it was schism and Gacy going against Breaker and we saw them four times a show, that's when it wore on you and you said, I don't really give a shit about this gimmick. It's stupid. It doesn't make any sense. It's killing the careers of Grizzled young veterans. I mean, we thought they were leaving the company. They're still there. Folks, I I don't even know what else to say. I'm bored, brother. Schism in small quantities is fine in a quantity like this. It was way too much on a single episode. And lastly, Kalani Jordan fought Blair Davenport. Jordan struggled with fluidity running the ropes, but she did hit a nice backspring elbow. Davenport took her down with a hanging double stomp and a Kamagoye for the win. This was classic, like, Black and gold NXT, meaning a neophyte against a top tier veteran in a short match that was almost like a training exercise. Kalani is obviously still really rough around the edges. After the bell, Dana Brooke got incensed and chased Blair around the ring with a belt. She almost hit Kalani, but then she stopped herself and yelled at her for losing instead. Later backstage, Dana basically took out all her career frustrations on Kalani, talking about the business eating her alive, the fans ridiculing her and taking a shit on her on social media. Jordan reminded it was only her third match, and Brooke said she just wants what's best for her, but can't be wanting it more than Kalani wants it for herself. She then apologized and promised to fight Davenport next week to show her. This was probably the best version of any of the segments they've had together. I took it as Dana Brooke kind of being categorized as like a stage mom for her. And if that was the plan, then... I kind of think it's working. I don't know that her acting is on point, but, you know, I don't know. They're they're, they're turning me around on this, to my surprise. That's what I'll say. So, folks, that was the wrap-up of NXT. Obviously, in two weeks' time, we will have the special Heat Wave uh, TV show. We'll do a small preview of that next week. 
But of course, No Mercy still very far out, I believe, end of September. So, you know, a long way to go until we're spending a lot of time on a NXT premium live event. Before we move over to AEW, allow me to first tell you about this really cool new product that has been introduced by G-Pen. It is the Tyson 2.0 Higher Vaporizer. They did this in collaboration with Tyson, obviously a legendary boxer. We've seen him in WWE and AEW before, but it's this whole new branding exercise they're doing with Tyson. And this vaporizer, it's fully customized. It's in a really cool boxing glove case, like a red glove. It comes packaged nicely, full Tyson 2.0 colorways. It uses G-Pen's newest dual-use vaporization system that is proving to be an absolute knockout. I have seen this thing. I've held it. It looks super cool. And if you are someone who utilizes uh, vaporization for one reason or another, this is something you definitely want to consider getting your hands on. It has rapid pass-through charging via USB-C. It's lightweight and durable, anodized aluminum casing. It basically redefines the limits of sheer power and portability. And just utilizing the simple three-button operation and five LED user interface, the G-Pen Higher, the Tyson 2.0 version in particular, it really allows for easy setup and activation while delivering an uncompromising experience. Be sure to check it out at gpen.com. As I said, let's move over to AEW where we have five hours of programming now to discuss in this space. I will note overall, AEW began announcing all-in matches this week. So we're gonna break down all three shows. And then at the end of this episode, give a short recap of the, I was gonna say updated all-in card, but the starting to be completed all-in card uh, with early thoughts about the viability, let's say, of each match. Again, collision over Dynamite, Rampage mostly a non-factor. It did have a notable main event, but Collision, again, was the best show this week. Let's get into it. On Rampage, the Kingdom talked about Adam Cole being part of their group in Ring of Honor before saying he's forgotten about his real friends. I just really hope there's a legitimate reason for shoving this nothing team into the Cole storyline. On Dynamite, we saw Cole and MJF celebrating their match from last week. MJF wanted to go to a bar with hot chicks. Cole instead made him go to a trampoline park. MJF was obviously pissed off about it until he learned they had dodgeball. Cole was acting like a little kid. MJF pelted some of the other kids with really soft balls and a playoff the Peyton Manning SNL kind of skit, except that one was funny. This unfortunately was not. A little girl walked up calling them nerds and then she flicked off Cole. That was kind of okay. This was just the worst of all of their segments by a significant margin. It was also unnecessary because they've already gotten past the bonding part of their story and they had a scheduled appearance on Dynamite later, which was fantastic. So they just didn't need to do this at all. So MJF and Cole were appropriately the crossover segment between hour one and hour two. MJF got cheap pops saying he now loves the Midwest after previously, of course, calling it mid. Cole said that he would win the AEW title. So MJF immediately went into heel promo mode with an absolutely killer line. He said, you are so skinny and ghostly pale white. If this were the 80s, Hogan would have snorted you. Cole said he didn't want to battle and MJF apologized. Cole then suggested they go all in at all in and win the Ring of Honor tag team titles, which mean a lot to him because he owes his career to ROH and he never won those titles. Cole wanted to challenge for the titles at all in zero hour, basically having them pull double duty. MJF was pretty hysterical, confused at the concept of wrestling twice in one night, but he agreed to challenge Aussie Open for the titles. Then Roderick Strong came out in the neck brace, angry that Cole wanted to do this with MJF and not him. So MJF made fun of Strong, calling him a bland bitch. And Strong said 
Kingdom was right about him not being their friends. So Kingdom came out. They hugged Strong. Then Cole shoved MJF, saying he's both of their friends. He was angry that he talked shit to Strong. He apologized. They hugged. MJF told Cole, go check on your boy. And you could tell based on like his facial expression here, he knew he would never be Cole's number one. And it like the reality of that hit him in that moment. This was an extremely hot segment. As we already knew, this is easily the top storyline in AEW in terms of what the fans actually care about. And they are executing it quite well. The ROH title match, it's an interesting twist. If I had to guess, the idea is twofold. One, get people watching the show early in the afternoon so they order and stay throughout. And for people at Wembley, get the asses in the seats and have them stay there through the duration. Two, create a scenario on the day of the AEW title match where Cole and MJF somehow start losing trust in one another. Now, this could be as simple as Strong and Kingdom interfering by attacking MJF and costing them the titles. That would soften him up for the main event and give Cole a better chance to win, whether that's in a consortium with them or on his own. It could also be as complicated as Cole playing MJF this entire time, rejoining the kingdom, and purposefully creating this match as a way to tear MJF apart in a double turn with Cole weakening him before their match. That could serve the purpose of a title change in the main event, or a huge hero babyface moment for MJF where he becomes a massive face before presumably fighting Punk one week later at All Out. There's a lot of ways this can go, including options where none of that happens. Cole loses, MJF simply turns on him, they lose and they fight each other and they're friends at the end, they win the titles, then one of them obviously will have to win the title match later, maybe that turns one against the other, they're champions and they're at odds, but you know, there's a million ways this can go is what I'm trying to say. I think some of those at the end that I just mentioned would be more boring, but the fact that they've created so much intrigue here in a very short period of time is impressive. What will be interesting to see is how it plays out and whether ultimately they stick the landing. And of course, as always, we will break that down for you right here on the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. On collision, Samoa Joe squashed her Pentago in a non-title match. Then he grabbed the mic saying CM Punk has never been better than him, but after losing to Punk, in the Owen via roll-up, he wanted a rematch at All-In where they can put everything on the line. Joe said he wanted an answer in a week or he would be forced to convince Punk. He also called him champ and referred to the real world title multiple times. So not only are they doing a rematch just a few weeks after they had a match, they are doing it for a fake title and the challenge was made before Punk even defended the fake title in a scheduled match on the same show. Joe's promo was great just because he's a good talker. But the timing of it, and this is a topic that we will touch on again momentarily, the timing and the pacing and the, not not, not the pacing, that's the wrong word. The timing of it and the order in which it transpired was nonsensical. So we're going to touch on that a few more times on this show. Also on Collision, the quote unquote real world championship was on the line, CM Punk against Ricky Starks. This was the main event. Ricky the Dragon Steamboat was the ringside enforcer instead of the guest referee as originally announced. Steamboat pulled Punk off Starks outside, seemingly for no reason. The crowd was mixed. They chanted for both of them. There was a botched high-risk move. Starks caught Punk's pump knee for a powerbomb out of the corner. Starks and accidentally ran into the rear referee and tried to put his foot on the ropes for a fall, but Steamboat pushed the feet off from ringside. Then Punk just rolled up Starks, with Steamboat slowly crawling in the ring and counting one, two, three on what was definitely an eight count. Like, there's no question about it. He barely got the one, two, three. Match was strong. 
There was great work both ways. The ending was really silly. Starks then pushed Steamboat into Punk. So Punk flew off the apron. Starks beat on Ricky and whipped him with a belt until Punk chased him away with the chair. He did get good heel heat here. Starks did. Don't get me wrong. Not sure I need to see a 70-year-old man whipped 25 times with a belt. But it was effective in cementing the heel turn. This was a successful main event overall, I would say. But with Punk now focused on the trio's titles for some reason, more on that in a bit, plus Joe, and presumably MJF at the end of the month, where exactly is this going to go with Starks? This time, at least AEW put real world championship in quotes, but commentary is still referring to it as if it's a legitimate title, and this match was sanctioned for it, which, again, is confusing and ridiculous. On Rampage, the Hardys and Keith Lee fought Butcher, Blade, and Kip Sabian. Jeff Hardy hit Swanton Bomb for the win. Nice reception for the crowd for the six-man. No storyline relevance. Keith was a replacement teammate due to injury. They did kind of work well together. On Rampage, the Young Bucks in a hallway talked about getting back into the tag team division. They praised the Hardys for having their backs last week, and the Hardys challenged them given they overheard their plans. And that set a match for Dynamite. Think what you want about the Bucks or whether the Hardys should still be wrestling, but if you're booking this match, you got to do a better angle than just, hey, you guys are a tag team again? Okay, we should fight. I mean, you got to do better than that. On Collision, the tag team championships were on the line, FTR against Big Bill and Brian Cage. The heels cut a decent promo on Rampage. Cage had a great line calling them too swole to control, which should 1,000% be their tag team name. Talk about selling t-shirts. People would buy the hell out of t-shirts that say too swole to control. You got to do that. This opened the show. FTR hit an assisted flying bulldog for a near fall. Cage came back with a double fall away slam, smo and drop. Then the heels hit uh, tandem moves with a jackhammer and a choke slam. Cage had an impressive tope con hero with Bill booting Cash Wheeler. FTR then caught Cage with Shatter Machine to retain the titles. Fun opener, obvious and correct winners. There's something about this Bill Cage team. It just works. While FTR didn't necessarily need another title defense given the run of matches that they have been on recently, it was another impressive victory for their reign. After the bell, Dax Harwood cut his standard promo about being the best tag team and starting a legacy. He said they can complete the legacy by beating the Young Bucks at Wembley Stadium in a rubber match to determine the best team of all time. Now, this is obviously the right booking for All In, no doubt about that. And because it's a rubber match, you don't necessarily need that much build for it. However, the Bucks literally 24 hours before this happened on Rampage had first stated they were getting back into the tag team division. They hadn't even wrestled the Hardys yet because that match was scheduled for Wednesday when this challenge was issued. Yet they already have a title match on the biggest show of the year for AEW. That is ridiculously out of order. Why not do this exact same announcement next week after they beat the Hardys? You're not trying to sell tickets. You're not trying to get people to tune in. It's not the go-home show. Wait, just wait. Do it in the proper order. It did not make any sense kayfabe in a timing standpoint. On Dynamite, the Young Bucks fought the Hardys. Thankfully, Wayward Son was not played. Hopefully that's over. The Bucks hit a bunch of super kicks and a 3D on Jeff Hardy. The Hardys came back with stereo side effects, and Jeff hit a swanton bomb on Nick Jackson for a broken fall. Matt super kicked Jeff's ankle to stop Whisper in the wind. Then Matt Hardy took the BTE trigger with Matt Jackson holding Jeff in the corner as the Bucks got the one, two, three. FTR came out after the bell for a stare down and really nothing else. Now expected result given, you know, they already had a title match before winning what could have been a de facto number one contendership if it was booked in the proper order. 
So again, not a surprise. Solid work for the Hardys in this spot. Probably the best they've looked together in a little bit, largely because the Jacksons carried them to a degree. It was nice to see all four guys hug after the bell. It was also kind of funny that Brandon Cutler was nice and cold sprayed the Hardys as well. The stare down was nothing. We'll talk more about this match later when we go over the card. On Dynamite, Kenny Omega backstage was excited for the Bucks title opportunity. He said he will be interviewed by Jim Ross next week, where he will discuss his future, current storylines, and the Wembley Stadium show. I presume it's either going to be Konosuke Takeshka or Will Ospreay on that show. It really should be Omega Ospreay. They didn't do the booking we expected already in their feud, so it does make a little bit less sense for them to have this match at all in. I could also see them saving it for Wrestle Kingdom next year. That would be a shame, but this is primarily a New Japan storyline, so the idea of two matches being on primarily AEW booked shows probably doesn't make that much sense. But again, it should be Omega Osprey. It probably will be Omega Takeshka. Dynamite opened with a JAS family meeting, all of them addressing Chris Jericho. His entrance did not include any JAS branding, but instead said Lionheart. JAS, they all wore black. Jericho was wearing maroon. Daniel Garcia cut him off from talking and told him just to listen. He said he sacrificed everything to support Jericho, but since he's not choosing him, he's out, and Garcia stormed off. Jake Hager walked out. Jericho said all their careers have improved under him. Ty Mello said she'll have the baby come back and become a champion without him. Hope that baby goes well because she ain't going to become a champion anytime soon. Anna JAS said she was done appreciating him and the women walked out. Angela Parker had easily the best and most believable promo of the entire group. Completely different level, probably like an eight out of 10. The rest were in the two to four range. Matt Menard was a bit too hysterical. Five out of 10 for him. They dipped out. Sammy Guevara was last. He slapped the mic out of Jericho's hand saying he won't walk out on him like the rest. And if Jericho works out his shit, maybe he'll still have his back in the future. But then he walked out on him anyway. So then backstage, Jericho told Don Callis that he would share his decision next week, which plays in kayfabe. But in reality, if he knows his decision, why not just make it right there? Solid segment overall to sell the story um, that they have been telling with Jericho. I would not have opened Dynamite with this, and I would have delivered the answer later in the same show as opposed to next week. It's one thing to ask people to stick around for an hour for the answer. It's quite another thing to say, hey, come back next week for this. There's really no reason to wait. It's a storyline. It's not the biggest storyline on the show. On Rampage, Sky Blue fought Anna Jay. 2.0 distracted as Blue looked ready to close out the match. So she smacked Angela Parker and then lost via submission in Queenslayer. Match was fine. It was just a temporary like resume building win uh, to excuse her getting a title match that really made no sense on Dynamite. On Collision, Tony Storm basically did like this as a promo. Don't worry. Don't worry. I'm not going to do what everyone thinks I'm going to do. Flip out, man. It was kind of strange. She had curlers in her hair, but was otherwise like all made up and looking good. The curlers were supposed to represent her falling apart without her title. So she just didn't take them out in time before the promo. It was really weird. Um, it was exceptionally odd, but it was also kind of the most interesting thing that Storm has done in AEW, especially because she wasn't with the outcasts. I, I don't know. I, I wasn't sure exactly what to think about this. Uh, before the women's title match on Dynamite, AEW announced the all-in match would be a fatal four-way. The excuse or the reason was that some of the most intense women's matches in AEW history were four-ways, and they would be continuing that tradition. 
They showed a few clips to support that contention. The announcement was that Storm was getting a buy into the four-way by exercising her rematch clause. I thought there was no rematch clause in AEW, particularly in situations like this. Quite convenient for that to now be the case. Sheeta, the champion, was not automatically in the match because obviously she was defending her title against Anna on Dynamite, a match that was happening for no reason. And then the other qualifiers are Soraya against Blue and Britt Baker against the Bunny. Hmm, I wonder who's going to win those matches. Convoluted way to get to this. Again, we'll discuss this match itself when we break down the card at the end. On Dynamite, the Women's Championship, Sheeta against Jay. This was the main event. Sheeta won with the Katana in a really weak match. Parker looked like he was trying to help Anna because he like touched her arm and shoulder in the finish, but the referee didn't do anything about it. And Sheeta got the one, two, three anyway. Well, like, was he trying to hold her down? It was really, really weird. And this match, I got to tell you just straight up, it was an utter waste of time. I got a DM from Nick Flynn at nflynn underscore 17. Does Tony Khan really think having the women main event dynamite two weeks in a row equals booking the women's division, quote unquote, better? Yes, he does. Uh, that's it because the storylines aren't there and there were better matches that should have main evented the show. So yes, I think that's exactly what he thinks he's doing. On Rampage, Tony Schiavone and Paul White announced before the parking lot brawl that Pac is injured and unable to compete with Lucha Brothers, who challenged the winners of the fight. It's just amazing that this guy came back, had like two matches, and he's gone again injured. But I was also confused because, and I could totally be wrong here. I, I, I admit that off the top. I thought the parking lot brawl was a six-man match, yet it was only a tag team match. So why did commentary need to point out that Pac was injured if it was only going to be a tag team match anyway on Dynamite? It's not like he would have teamed with Pentagon instead of Ray Phoenix. You know what I mean? So maybe there's a part of this that I missed, but I was confused here. So then we got the parking lot brawl, best friends against John Moxley and Claudio Castagnoli. Chuck Taylor's face was red before the bell and Trent Beretta started bleeding. I shit you not less than 15 seconds after the bell because Mox stabbed him with a fork. I think he actually started bleeding before that and then it was exasperated by the fork. Mox then bladed inside of two minutes. Claudio ripped off a car spoiler to beat Trent. Best friends got smashed under a hood and then Trent was swung into a plastic trash can. Chunk was suplexed into a guardrail. Trent hit a senton on Claudio into a guardrail that was propped horizontally between two car doors ridiculously sick spot, like easily the spot of this match. Mox then put Trent through a windshield with Death Rider, also a really good spot. Chuck then literally siphoned gasoline out of a car and lit a barbed wire two by four on fire. It barely got lit and immediately went out. Wheeler Yuta jumped out of an SUV to distract and stab Chuck with the screwdriver. Then Sue drove in the van, the white van, with Orange Cassidy on the roof. He got triple teamed. Yuta DDT'd Orange on Sue's hood, and Claudio opened her door. Why didn't she lock her door? BCC destroyed the car. Mox stomped Trent on a door. Then Mox stomped him on the windshield with Claudio covering him for the win before BCC kept destroying Sue's car as Rampage ended. So here's the deal. I was loving this match, just like I did the first parking lot brawl. Up until Yuta jumped out of the SUV and Chuck started siphoning gas. From there, it was utterly ridiculous. If this was a three-act play, 
The first two delivered, the third was an eye roller. At some point, the blood and the violence, it leads to diminishing returns. And it was also extremely one-sided. They forced their way into redoing this first parking lot brawl for nostalgia purposes, despite the storyline not calling for it in this specific situation. I'd give it, I mean, it's so tough, 3.75 stars and a B plus. I was nearly a half star higher before the siphoning of the gas and Yuta. It completely fell apart after that. On Dynamite, Lucha Bros fought Mox and Claudio. In a pre-match promo, Claudio revealed Pac would miss Wembley Stadium and be out for months. Unbelievable. Uh, Yuta jumped out of the crowd to interfere only to get into it with Alex Abrahantis. So Ray Phoenix moonsaulted Yuta and sold an injured knee. Mox then rolled up Pentagon, pulling his trunks for the win. After the bell, we saw that Mox actually pulled off Penta's mask, which is obviously kryptonite for a luchador. Uh, in a roll-up situation, they cover their face. They don't kick out. They just take the loss. But talk about a lackluster finish. You know what I mean? BCC attacked after the bell. They beat the shit out of these guys because that's what always happens. Claudio put on Penta's mask. And that was it. I'm not sure where there is to go for this group. They lost to the elite. There's no one else in AEW that kind of stands up to them in this way. It feels like they should be in something that matters, but it's almost like their mystique is gone outside of just being ultra violent in matches. On Dynamite, the FTW title was on the line, Jack Perry against Rob Van Dam. It was really cool hearing Taz on commentary for an RVD match in 2023. Jungle Boy was draped over the barricade. RVD nearly split him in half with his spinning leg drop off the apron. RVD also hit the running dropkick and rolling thunder with chairs. He slightly botched the split leg moonsault. It missed. Jack threw a chair that hit the referee in the head. Then he like threw himself off the top rope through a table without anything else happening. RVD took advantage with a five-star frog splash, but obviously there was no referee to count. So Jack low blowed him, ran him into a chair that was propped in the corner and rolled him up to retain the title. This match over-delivered completely because of RVD. Jack did well, don't get me wrong, but nothing he did was special. Seeing RVD do his entire moveset at age 52 was cool and it was nostalgic. One of the biggest surprises, and I've said this many times on our WWE shows, one of the biggest surprises to me over the last few years is that WWE never brought RVD in for a feud on a major show or even just a Royal Rumble appearance. The guy can clearly still go. He was inducted into the Hall of Fame recently, and he's a name that fans absolutely love. Exactly what you want for Rumble surprises. Smart move by AEW to do this. A big win for Perry against a legend, even with the way it transpired. On Collision, the trio's titles were on the line. House of Black against Darius Martin, Action Andretti, and Lee Johnson. This was an open house rules match. The challenger's stipulation was that Julia Hart would be banned from ringside. So again, I, I don't understand some of this. So after the last title match, you'll remember I criticized that they went completely away from the open house gimmick with the stipulation and the aesthetic. But now it was back. Why did it go away? Why is it now back? Did everyone just forget about it for one week or am I missing something here? Johnson got absolutely mauled with a huge cannonball sent on and a toss forum from Brody King. Andretti broke a fall with a springboard 450. Then King kicked out of one after a high risk from Martin. King eventually beat him with a discus lariat. House of Black remains exceptionally cool, almost effortlessly cool. I just wish they were featured more on Collision, and I wish they were involved in meteor storylines. I don't mind the one-off random trios matches and, and all the challenges because it's built into this idea of open house rules. But in addition to those, you need to have larger stories. 
after this match was over, commentary announced that CMFTR would challenge for the trio's titles next week. Why? They're all champions. Punk is a fake champion. Sure, they're the caliber of challenger that would merit a title match. But again, why are they challenging for them? No storyline? Nothing. It's frustrating. I love high-quality work-rate wrestling. I like that they're trying to put big matches on Collision to draw the audience. I get it. I'm a huge fan of Collision as a show. But holy shit, they are missing the storyline element that ties everything together on Saturday nights. On Collision, Juice Robinson was cutting a promo with a cardboard cutout of Jay White when White came in, smacked the cutout, and said he was going to beat up Metalik. Then he referred to the ass boys as the top guns, and they all messed with Shivani. This was all over the place. Top guns obviously make sense as a name, but it's also obviously a ripoff. And also, FTR calls themselves top guys, which kind of makes that confusing, unless that's the point. It was just a weird segment. White fought Metalik. White won a short match, but it was nice. He hit Blade Runner. Then Bullet Club celebrated with the cardboard cutout. I'm positive I somehow missed the point of this cutout. Was it like a stand-in for Jay one week when he wasn't there? That's on me, but it just feels like it came out of nowhere and it doesn't really have any purpose. He's back. Why are they still using it? On Rampage, Chris Statlander backstage did squats with Renee Paquette over her shoulders while cutting a promo on Mercedes Martinez. This was the single best thing that she has done since returning. It was funny. On Collision, the TBS title was on the line, Stat against Martinez. There was a great spider suplex by Martinez here. Uh, Stat then had a cool fisherman's driver. Stat then won shortly after with an O'Connor roll plus a bridge. Martinez was pissed. She attacked Chris after the bell. So Diamante ran down. She still exists, apparently. She attacked Stat as well. Then Willow Nightingale ran down for the save. Commentary told us the women's action in AEW has never been hotter. Bullshit. Uh, Match was solid. I'd have loved another five minutes. Diamante made her first appearance on AEW TV in 11 months. Her prior appearance before that was 12 months. Her prior appearance before that was 11 months. So she has made three appearances on AEW TV in 34 months. I guess we'll see her next summer in 2024. I suppose this is technically a storyline for stat, so I should be happy, but it's leading to a tag team match. Then I guess Diamante challenges her. It's weak stuff. On Collision, Christian Cage cut a promo with his daughter and Luchasaurus. He talked a bunch of trash when the daughter asked to hold the belt. Cage said she didn't win it, so no. Then she told her to go find her mother. And as she was walking out, he made a comment to security that she wasn't credentialed to be backstage. That was legitimately funny. Random, but legitimately funny. And obviously, you know, the idea of Christian holding the title, which he didn't win, plays into the whole thing as well. On Rampage, Swerve Strickland and AR Fox fought a couple jobbers. The Hills had a brain buster and a 450 win in two minutes. Swerve's looking good. It's strange how he keeps getting relegated to tag teams when he's the leader of a faction. On Dynamite, Mogul Affiliates, they hit the ring. Swerve cut a promo on murdering Nick Wayne last week. Fox called out Darby Allen, who screamed that he tried to help Fox, but had to succeed on his own with Fox getting to AEW on his own without Darby's help. So again, let's get this clear. Darby would not help AR Fox get a shot in AEW after three years in the company, but he helped him get an international title match three weeks ago. That doesn't track at all in storyline. So anyway, the lights turned out. Sting appeared in the ring with his bat. Five young guys were unable to handle 64-year-old Sting with a bat. Somehow, everyone was shocked that Sting showed up here, despite the fact that he's constantly on TV and always has Darby's back. Anyway, Sting put the bat under Swerve's jaw. Then he pointed to the all-in sign. He went to swing it and Swerve ducked away. And it's going to be a tag team match at all-in. Smart to get Sting on the card. 
Don't really have much more to say about this. On Collision, the acclaimed were interviewed by Shivani, saying they tried but failed to get Billy Gunn to take his boots back because Gunn blamed himself for losing a step and being pinned twice by Malachi Black. But they said they have unfinished business as a trio, and maybe they are the ones who failed him. Anthony Bowens then got choked up, saying Gunn helped them find themselves in AEW and become champions. This was probably like a top three or four interview segment in AEW's entire history. Not short, which they usually are for no reason. It was impactful, developed a storyline, and it showed some acting ability on Bowen's part. Really good stuff. And lastly, on Rampage, QTV still exists. QT Marshall was looking for pitches on who they can go after next. Johnny TV did some really weird slide down a random red carpet. He issued an open challenge to whoever has been on television. Then QTV was on collision, interrupting a powerhouse Hobbs interview with Marshall gifting him a gold Cuban links necklace and promising him the biggest win of his career at All Out. Hobbs took the necklace, which when he grabbed it, it sounded plastic and fake, but then he refused QT's help. What match is he even talking about? Like, look, Johnny did make this better for a couple of weeks, but it still sucks a big one. That is one big pile of shit. And that is really it from AEW this week. So with that said, let's get to this AEW All in London card. Before we get to the matches, I'm not sure if everyone else has noticed this, but the show is not all in. It's all in London. That leads me to believe AEW's plan is to hold one major international event each year under this banner in different locations. Maybe that's just pure speculation and I'm I'm spitballing here and there's no basis in reality, but you would think that's the idea given how strong ticket sales were for the show and the way it's being labeled. Anyway, onto the card, ROH Tag Team Championships, Aussie Open against MJF and Adam Cole, Zero Hour. We already discussed this one. It's a curious booking for sure. I'm almost positive it's for the two reasons I mentioned earlier, asses and seats, storyline implications. AEW Championship, MJF against Cole. For an event of this size, it's actually somewhat surprising this is the main event given some of the names on the roster. Two of my favorites personally, so I love it, but it was surprising in that context. Women's Championship, Sheeta, Storm, Soraya, and Baker. Yes, I'm making the assumption. And let's not get it twisted. We know who's going to be in the match. I'm not sure if I love this or I hate it. I'm completely mixed. I love the idea of a four-way featuring big names in the women's division on this show. It's also a good way to get Soraya on the card in her home country, but protect her because she clearly cannot go in the ring. But I also hate that AEW has a show of this caliber, and rather than, you know, develop a cohesive storyline for the women, they just defaulted to this. It's legitimately lazy, and it's proof they just don't care about the division. Maybe the way to term it is that this is the best they could do given it's a bad situation. Tag Team Championship, FTR against the Young Bucks, makes total sense to do it in this spot. As mentioned earlier, I would have liked the Bucks to win a number one contendership or get built back a little bit into being a tag team title contender because they haven't been focused on it. But it's such a big rivalry that it's fine. It's appropriate for a match of this caliber to be on this show. The real world championship, quote unquote, Punk against Samoa Joe. This is completely lazy, particularly given they already fought in the Owen. If you were going to do this match, there was no reason to give it away on a collision episode. If they're going to do the champion versus the quote unquote real champion at all out, then Punk absolutely needs to wrestle on the show. And Punk had to be on it anyway because of his stature and star power, but the booking's ridiculous. And again, it's a pure rematch. And lastly, Darby and Sting against Swerve and AR Fox. We've seen Darby and Sting so many times. So they had to be on the show. Sting had to be on the show. I'm not excited about this. It's a solid card. I thought it was going to be a super show with outside AEW talent. Maybe it still will be, but this kind of feels like a really strong regular pay-per-view card. It's only six matches, though. You know they're going to have like 14. 
So we'll have to see how the rest of this builds out. And that, folks, was the week in NXT and AEW, a mixed bag, clearly, for both brands as far as I was concerned. NXT and AEW have both been rolling hot. I should say NXT and Collision have been rolling hot. Dynamite seems to have suffered a little bit because of some of the talent that is not consistently on that show that is now on Collision. And Collision just feels fresh, while Dynamite, in many cases, feels like it's spinning its wheels. But as All In kind of comes up, we will see if they figure out ways to improve it in the go-home weeks, I guess, for lack of a better term. With that, let's wrap up the show. You know how I always do it. First, with a reminder that the Getting Over Wrestling podcast is all about Defy. So please leave those five-star ratings for us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. On Apple, take a little extra time. Leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news analysis, highlights, and all of that. And if you already follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast, don't forget to share our tweets. Please also remember, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well. I would love it if you became an official Getting Overhead. Visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over for $5 a month or $50 for the year. You can indeed get that official Getting Overhead title. Not only that, you're obviously supporting the show with your funds. You get news posts every week and bonus audio drops as well. Again, buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. In terms of what's coming up next week here on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast, you know we're going to be back on Tuesday with our next WWE episode. Vintage Chris Benini does return for that show. We'll be talking one year of WWE creative under Triple H. Some notes from the Cody Rhodes American Nightmare documentary. I think it's called Becoming American Nightmare, whatever the case. Notes from that documentary and, of course, the entire week in WWE. And then on Thursday, same bat time, same bat channel as this show, we will not only talk about the week in AEW, but also a mini for NXT Heat Wave, which, of course, is coming up in two weeks' time. I appreciate all of you. Thank you so much for listening to the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. This is the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, signing off and leaving you with just three final words. Bye for now.